Hi, Mike here. Just a warning, there's a little strong language in this episode. On the afternoon of February the 22nd, 2011, David and Jeanette Beaumont were at their home in suburban Christchurch, getting ready to host friends for dinner that night. Of course, the earthquake struck and shook everything, but far from the central city, they didn't get an immediate sense of just how bad it was. A very good friend of Matt's came down the drive very serious look on his face. And he said, look, he said, have you heard the the news about the CTV building? This is David Beaumont. We heard from him way back in episode two. The person he's talking about here is a friend of his son, Matty, who worked in the CTV building. Matty was a program scheduler for CTV, but he'd had just about every job at the station. Is it all right, though? You're coping all right with the big 3-0? The walking stick helps a lot. It does. He was on the first floor of the building when the quake hit. He said, look, he said... There's been a collapse. We said, no, you know, we hadn't heard about that at all. He said, oh, yeah, he said the, the building's collapsed. So we still weren't concerned because the extent of the earthquake hadn't really hit us. And then, of course, we didn't hear any more from Matt and things started to escalate from there. The Beaumonts became worried that night when they saw on TV what was left of the CTV building and they still hadn't heard from their son. The next day, a Wednesday, they and Maddie's fiance Kelly Thorndycroft, checked at Christchurch Hospital and Civil Defence Headquarters, but there was no sign of Matty. Probably by the Wednesday night, I would say. Our hopes were really deteriorating then, you know. There was still a glimmer of hope, maybe, but probably by the Wednesday evening we were starting to resign ourselves to the to the fact that we'd lost our boy. Give us a clue. I'm going to destroy this. Okay. Go on then. Okay, I reckon you'll get lots because I'm going to cheat a fair bit. Okay. Which is all good. It's very difficult to describe. You're just, you're just so bound up in the, in the grief of it. The sudden event like that. You've got no preparation. No one's been ill or something like that at all. It's just something happens. Matty Beaumont, the only child of David and Jeanette Beaumont, died in the CTV building, along with 15 of his colleagues from Canterbury Television. He was 31 years old. So, because we're a visual medium, I've got some visual aids. Excellent idea. Can we go across to the board, Miss Ford? Let's go to the board. Here we go. Right, well, our first one is uh, Hannah Montana. The Beaumonts had to wait more than three months before Maddie's remains were identified and returned to them. By that point, they had a good idea of the devastation at the CTV site. Victims' families had been shown around the scene, and the government had announced a commission of inquiry to investigate every death caused by a building collapse. Was there any thought at that point, early on, about why this had happened to this building? No, not really, I don't think, because we'd seen the devastation there. That wasn't at the forefront of your mind because it happened and that was it. No one was really looking for reasons at that stage at all. But 18 months later, when the Commission finally turned its attention to the CTV building, David Beaumont attended almost every day of the hearing. We begin the hearing into the failure of the CTV building. He listened as the story unfolded. The flawed design, the engineer working unsupervised and out of his depth and the multiple chances to fix the problem. The thing that really upset us was the fact that there were so many opportunities where that 
event could have been stopped. It was just this whole sequence of things through it where, you know, why didn't somebody say this and that, you know, why? Beaumont thought the commission did a good job. He liked that the final report criticised those who'd made mistakes, but kept a sympathetic tone. But even before the hearings finished, he'd started to notice that not all the victims' families felt the same way. Some of them were angry. You could soon see that we were dividing into two parties, but there were so many different meetings and such like, and one particular meeting we went to and, and had a whiteboard up, and they started putting these names down of people who hadn't, they felt hadn't uh, justified their jobs, you know, and it was it just starting to grow very, very quickly and rapidly. The families of the CTV victims had fallen into two distinct groups. There were those, like Beaumont, who thought the Royal Commission of Inquiry was all the accountability the CTV disaster needed. And there were those who thought it was just the start. My name is uh, Man Al-Kaysi. I lost my wife, Dr. Mason Abbas, in the CTV building. Man Al-Kaysi is from that second group. For most of the past decade, he's been the face of a CTV families group calling for more accountability over the collapse. Al-Kaysi's wife, Maisoon Abbas, was a doctor at the clinic medical practice, which had been operating out of CTV for only five weeks before the quake. She's a very determined person, very proud of herself and her job. And it was really hard for me to realise that I'm not going to see her again. Al-Kaysi and Abbas were married for 35 years. They met as students at Baghdad University in the 1970s. She was studying medicine, he was studying engineering. They left Iraq in 1991 to escape conflict in the region and arrived in New Zealand with their three daughters in 1995. When the earthquake struck, Al-Kaysi was at work at the University of Canterbury. Hours later, he stood in front of what remained of the CTV building and had an epiphany. It was just rubble, dust. Immediately I said, Mason does not deserve this. She's a strong woman. She's clever. She's beautiful. She's a, a huge fighter. And she loses her life in this unfair way. That really triggered all my pursuit for justice and accountability. The Royal Commission confirmed Man al instinct. To him, the issue was clear. The failures of David Harding, the engineer who designed the CTV building, and Harding's boss, Alan Ray, warranted more than just a strongly worded report. And then, in September 2014... Christchurch police have announced they're pushing ahead with the criminal investigation into the collapse of the CTV building. The move's been... The police were basing their investigation on a report from engineering firm Becker. Becker had spent months looking at the CTV case and concluded that two people, Harding and Ray, could be held criminally liable for the deaths of 115 people in the collapse. What followed was three years of intensive investigation police consulted experts from New Zealand and the USA. They seized more than 30 computer hard drives, 
dug up the ground beneath the CTV site and literally recreated some parts of the building. The whole operation cost more than a million dollars. When it was over, investigators were ready to break out the handcuffs and arrest warrants for David Harding and Alan Ray. At least, that's how it seemed to Manal Casey. Every time we met the police, they tell us that they have enough evidence to prosecute. They've never ever said they are not going to prosecute. That never said to us. I'm Michael Wright. And I'm Margaret Gordon. On February 22, 2011, a devastating earthquake shook the city of Christchurch, killing 185 people. Two-thirds of those people were in one building, a building that should never have been built. From stuff, this is collapse. Last 10 years I have disaster dreams. You definitely don't leave your best friend and move on. But there's one regret that I'll take to my grave is not being able to save her. The police investigation into the CTV building collapse hinged on one phrase, major departure. As in, were either David Harding or Alan Ray's actions in relation to the building collapse a, quote, major departure from the standard expected of a professional engineer? In other words, even if Ray and Harding conceded that they'd made mistakes or not done things they should have done, was their conduct so far outside the accepted norm that it became criminal? The major departure line was lifted directly from the Crimes Act, so if either man was going to be prosecuted over the CTV collapse, this was the threshold that had to be met. In terms of the number of victims, it's the largest homicide inquiry that New Zealand Police has ever undertaken. This is Detective Senior Sergeant Grant Collins. He was second in command on the CTV case. When he was first drafted onto the investigation in 2014, he was told it'd be six months tops away from his day job. It turned out to be a lot longer than that. And I was thrust into a world of calculations and design and, and all manner of technical speak. And three years later, three and a bit years later, when it all came to an end, it felt very much like a, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, I guess the motivation is different than a fast-running whodunit murder inquiry. You've got a, a crime committed, you've got a victim, you've got families, and, and the hunt is on and it's all in a short space of time. This was a long, a long play. And so the motivation had to be about getting it right. Collins was in charge of making sure the investigation covered every element of the CTV building. That meant breaking it down into phases. Concept, design, construction, the 1990 retrofit. And issues like looking into the soil under the CTV site, the strength of the earthquake itself, and all the inspections and assessments between the September and February quakes. There was nothing in there that indicated that we were on the wrong track, that everything supported the Becker view. Sometimes the investigation went to pretty extraordinary lengths. One of the main causes of the collapse, identified by the Royal Commission and Becker, was poorly designed joints. This was where the horizontal beams and the vertical columns that held up the building intersected. 
To test this, the police rebuilt these joints. They actually made three versions. One version as they were designed, another version that replicated the way they were actually constructed, and a third that was built in a way that would have complied with 1980s building standards. Remember, Harding's design didn't even meet those standards, so the first two versions were always going to be weaker. The attention to detail was kind of extraordinary. Police wanted the concrete for the joints to match the real thing, so they travelled to the Waimakariri River, just north of Christchurch, to get the same shingle that was used in the 1980s. Then they had it trucked north to Auckland, where the joints would be built. And the reinforcing steel rods for the columns? They weren't commercially available anymore, so police got a special one-off run manufactured. Making the replica joints didn't actually take too long. But then police had to wait about nine months for the concrete to cure, so the joints were strong enough for a fair comparison. Then... That's the sound of one of the replica beam column joints being subjected to the same forces of the February earthquake on a shake table at the University of Auckland. The first version, that's the one built according to Harding's design, failed in the test. The second version, the one that replicated the actual joints in the building, passed, but only with the caveat of so long as every other element of the building was up to code, which we know isn't true. The version that complied with the 1980s building code held together, no caveats. Even if the building around it was non-compliant, Becker said, it was likely that these joints would have held together in the February quake. This was a big deal. It showed that the joints, as they were built, and as Harding designed them, weren't up to scratch. If they had been up to scratch, the building might have stood a chance. So yeah, a big deal. But it was only one part of their case. Here's investigation head, Detective Superintendent Peter Reid. You identify one aspect, you think, oh, this is it. But then there's another aspect that comes up. So we had to close down all of the different theories about you know, earthquake strength, concrete strength, the ground issues that we had. And as we've said, this took years. For those of us on the outside, it was mostly just waiting. There wasn't much Peter Reid could tell the media other than the investigation is progressing. Every now and then, though, something exciting happened. Christchurch police have carried out four searches as part of their investigation into the fatal collapse of the CTV building. They seized documents and cycled... Like on a Friday afternoon in June 2015, when police showed up, without warning, at the offices of Alan Ray's engineering firm in Christchurch, with a search warrant. The search took an entire weekend. More than 30 computer hard drives were seized and cloned. Thousands of pages of material. In the end, police didn't find anything at Ray's offices that either added to or detracted from their case. All the same, by 2016, police reckoned they had learnt enough that... We, we were well and truly on the path of let's prosecute. The recommended charges by police were one... An offensive manslaughter against Ray. And two... An offensive manslaughter against Harding. In most cases, if police decide to press charges, they just press charges. But because CTV was so complex and the stakes so high, lawyers had to be consulted. First was the Christchurch Crown solicitor who would be the one leading any prosecution. 
He didn't exactly pour cold water on the case, but he definitely pumped the brakes. Yes, he said police could prosecute, but there were issues, mostly around whether or not you could prove what Ray and Harding did actually caused the collapse, and if their conduct amounted to criminal negligence or was just a series of really unfortunate mistakes. And there was one more snag, an old, literally medieval principle that was still on the law books in New Zealand. A year and a day. 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 This was an archaic rule that held that if a person did something that caused the death of another person, they couldn't be held responsible if the thing they did occurred more than one year and one day before the death. So, if you designed a substandard building in 1986 and that building collapsed in an earthquake in 2011 and people died as a result, you couldn't be charged over those deaths because 2011 is a lot more than one year and one day after 1986. It seemed like a nonsense, and really, it was. The law had its origins in the Middle Ages when people distrusted medical science and the idea that someone's death could be attributed to an injury that had happened years earlier. A year and a day had been slated for repeal in New Zealand, but the government hadn't quite gotten around to it. After the quake, there was no way they could do it and have that retroactively apply to the CTV case. So the law stood. This wasn't a surprise to the investigators. They knew about a year and a day. They'd considered it and were confident they could get around it. Here's Peter Reid again. The year and a day should relate to when the injury was sustained so that death had to ensue within that year and a day. So we obviously met that because all the people either died immediately or within a short period of time. After the Christchurch Crown solicitor came Crown Law, the lawyers to the government who oversaw all prosecutions in New Zealand. Crown Law went even further. They said that all the issues the Crown solicitor had flagged, taken together, meant police just didn't have enough evidence. Even if the evidential test is satisfied, their report said, we do not consider that the public interest requires the prosecution of a case that is at best marginal on the evidence. We do not recommend prosecution in this instance. The words do not recommend were in bold. Despite all these misgivings, the two reviews of the evidence were just advice. The decision to prosecute or not ultimately lay with the police which meant Peter Reid had to make a call. Do what he thought was right, put the case in front of a jury, or follow Crown Law's advice, that's the do not recommend in bold letters, and drop it. Uh, Thank you all for coming today. My name's Detective Superintendent Peter Reid. On the 22nd of February 2011 at 12.51pm... On November 30th, 2017... Detective Superintendent Peter Reid faced the media and the public to announce whether or not police would be pressing charges over the CTV collapse. That day, Marnell Casey was at a conference in Wellington. And it was lunchtime when I looked at my phone and I saw probably 20 messages. And then the phone rang and I answered and it was somebody from the media, and he asked me, what is your reaction to the police announcement? And I said, what police announcement? We've now decided that after very careful consideration of all the information available to us, 
the evidence is not sufficient to provide a reasonable prospect of conviction. Further legal obstacle was identified and around law. He was like stunned. He couldn't believe that. I don't know. It honestly, it felt that everything kind of collapsed. That we've been waiting for seven years. It was a huge disappointment. The memory that I didn't like was the the media conference, which is always going to be difficult in the families meeting after that. I knew that was going to be hard. I was certainly um, disappointed that we couldn't satisfy the needs and wants of the families. Um, if I'd taken my heart's advice, we would have prosecuted. But I can't take my heart's advice. I have to use my head. I have to compare it against and measure it against the system. I know we did a really, really good investigation, and it was a very comprehensive investigation. I think we took it further than I think others would have taken it. But not to have actually ended up in a courtroom was disappointing. You wanted the families to have, I suppose, their day in court, but the ability to hold someone to account. I, I always feel that I've let them down. Peter Reid had just led an investigation that ran for nearly four years and cost more than a million dollars. Despite being confident he had a case, despite recommending 115 charges of negligent manslaughter be laid against Alan Ray and David Harding, he was doing the opposite. Even now, there's a cognitive dissonance about the whole thing. Like, police thought not prosecuting was both the right and wrong decision. I think the decision that I came to in the end was the right decision, based on the evidence that we had. Not necessarily saying that it was the right decision for families or for the need to hold someone to account, but I don't think we would have got a conviction. In fact, I know we wouldn't have got a conviction. Kia ora and good evening. The families of the 115 people who died in the collapse of the CTV building in Christchurch say the decision not to prosecute anyone is disgusting. The long-awaited investigation into the building... This was the point where the CTV saga really became a scandal for a lot of people. No one would be held to account over the only building that completely collapsed in the earthquake. There's a part of me that agrees with Peter Reid. What more evidence do you need than a flawed design, a collapse, and more than 100 deaths? But as you just heard some pretty experienced lawyers and Reid himself say, it wasn't that simple. There were definitely other factors in play. And that made it a lot harder to prove that the whole thing was a result of what David Harding and Alan Ray did or did not do back in 1986. Things like the countless aftershocks between September 2010 and February 2011. Did they weaken the building? But that's cold comfort if you're looking for answers on why 115 people died. If you're not a lawyer, it's hard to accept that the fallout from this tragedy hinged on interpretations of legal principles, or something as obscure as a year and a day. And it doesn't answer the bigger question at the heart of the disaster. Was the CTV building collapse fate or someone's fault? Was this building destined to fall down through a combination of innocent mistakes and terrible luck? Or should the people who made those mistakes be held responsible? Humans like clarity, especially after an inexplicable loss. So when we learn errors were made, it's natural to start pointing fingers. 
But then lawyers come in and muddy the waters and actually they've got some good points and clarity is a long way off. The day after police announced they wouldn't prosecute, the editorial in Christchurch's press newspaper said the decision offends our deepest sense of justice. When an obviously faulty building collapses, taking so many lives with it, and no one is held accountable, it leaves a dark stain on Christchurch that will endure long after the city has been rebuilt. The police decision hardened the resolve of those victims' families who were convinced Ray and Harding should pay for their mistakes. More than anyone else, Maan Al-Kaisi has embodied that resolve. It's really very hard that the people who you trust, who you go to asking for justice and accountability, let you down. Just imagine yourself with your best friend in a journey and something goes wrong with your best friend. What do you do? Do you leave him and move on? Or you want to do something? You you definitely don't leave your best friend and, and move on. That is not, anyway, that is not me. Following the police decision, victims' families met Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who told them there was nothing more the government could do. They then protested near the CTV site. To protest this unfair decision and will continue to stand up. This is the drive that has kept the CTV tragedy in the present instead of consigning it to the past. Even in late 2020, Maan Al-Kaisi called another press conference urging the government to step in and get police to reconsider. We respectfully request that the Prime Minister appoint one or two retired judges to independently review and report on... We have been fighting and we continue to fight. Nobody can silence us. I think that this moving on culture puts a huge pressure on people and you end up with all sorts of mental health issues because they have to pretend that they have moved on and they are not. On the other side of this is David Beaumont, Matty Beaumont's father. He'd watched two sides take hold among the victims' families way back at the Commission of Inquiry. There were those who wanted people held to account and those who wanted no part of it. Beaumont wanted no part of it. When the Prime Minister met the CTV families in 2017, he said as much. Please, let us at some stage just let this go. Mars had his say, we've had, you know, we've done everything we possibly can. And for Matty's sake, let's finally say, water under the bridge, it's all flowed through. David Beaumont wishes those crusading families would let the matter rest. But he knows they won't. For them, the CTV collapse is a travesty as much as it is a tragedy. You heard what Manal Casey said, nobody can silence us. I've reported on the CTV tragedy for 10 years, and even now, I'm still not sure who is right. Manal Casey fighting on, 
or David Beaumont letting it rest. I don't know if there even is a right. It's a bit like the ultimate question on CTV. Was it fate or someone's fault? Sometimes I think about Tim Elms, who for a long time was the co-head of the CTV Families Group, along with Mark. Tim was an old English guy with a gentle demeanour who lost his daughter in the building. Just like Man, Tim wouldn't be silenced. He was always happy to talk when I rang, and he kept me updated on what was going on with the family's group. He never gave up the fight. Tim died of cancer last year while we were making this podcast. He was 75 years old. Even if Tim had the last 10 years over again, I don't know if he would have done anything differently. Maybe it's what he was destined to do. He certainly wasn't the only person the CTV building had a lasting effect on. Back in episode two, we met Torpy Emery. He'd been in the CTV building when the earthquake hit. Hi, Wendy. Look, this is the most amazing story of the afternoon. We have been keeping a vigil with Torpy's mother, Tanya. He spent five hours trapped in the rubble before he was rescued, still wearing his new green and black high-top Nikes. The thing, the thing is, while I'm on TV, is to um, thank all the rescuers. You know, yep. that's the reason why I'm out five hours later. So what are your plans now, Torpy? Live life to the fullest. Toppy Emery was really hard to find for this podcast. His name came up a couple of times in passing at the coroner's inquest and I found one fleeting reference to him online in a story written on the day of the earthquake. In the hectic rush of that day, the journalist had spelt his name wrong. When I eventually worked out the correct spelling, the best lead I had was a judge's sentencing notes from 2019. Toppy, T-O-P-I, Emery, guilty of one charge of assault with a weapon. I tracked him down through his lawyer. That conviction landed Torpy nine months in prison. He'd hit someone over the head with a bicycle seat. The sentencing notes gave a picture of his life up until that point. A tragic boating accident as a child where two other kids drowned, his father's incarceration, his mother's alcoholic and abusive boyfriend. Uh, I'd already had it from early age. I used to have to go to violence sessions every afternoon at my primary school because I was just that guy. I was like the class clown, but I just wouldn't take shit from no one. But then my old man got locked up when I was eight years old, got out when I was 14, so by then I'd already joined the gang. The sentencing notes also detailed Torpy's lengthy criminal history, including aggravated robbery. When the CTV building collapsed, he'd only been out of prison for a couple of months, after nearly four years inside. The judge specifically mentioned CTV as well. After the quake, Torpy had been formally diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of his ordeal. And doing jail since I was 17, so that's like my last leg, that's the last time I've ain't got no more jail time in me. I can't handle this shit anymore. Oh, about 10, 15 minutes earlier, we're over at um, Limwood. In almost 10 years since the quake, Torpy Emery had never been back to the CTV site. I haven't been here ever. Like, I'm usually in jail and I usually... A few months ago, he met us on the corner of Cashel and Madras streets and reflected on what he resolved to do the last time he was there. 
It was a life changer, it woke me up, but you know, made me think life's not something to be taken for granted. You only have one life. Yeah, not every day is promised to you. So I try and live my life to the fullest, like I said on my statement at, at the end. So that's all I do now, mainly put my time into my kids. Sadly, this hasn't worked out for Torpy. As of February 2021, he's back in jail, facing several assault-related charges. Tania told us Torpy's on medication now that's helping him cope better with his PTSD. He hadn't had any before. We wish him the best. Josh Hilbers came from a different world to Torpy Emery. His life was a lot more stable. He had friends, family and a job temping on a building site. On February 22nd, he was working in an old church just across the road from where his mum, Marion Hilbers, worked in the CTV building. Josh watched the building collapse in the earthquake that day with his mum inside. When the shaking stopped, he climbed onto the rubble and called his mum's phone over and over again, getting no answer. And I think it took me maybe an hour, an hour and a half before I got on the phone to someone who was my dad. And... Yeah. I, uh... I broke down and just told him that, um... Mum was gone. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Josh got a lift out of the city to go and break the news to his brother, Sam. He stopped at home first, grabbed a bottle of whiskey, and drank the whole way there. And from there, I uh, proceeded to just sort of bury myself in the bottle. Yeah, I just sort of went to a state of apathy, I guess you could say. So, yeah, I just numbed myself. I I numbed myself for a very long time. Josh spent the next few years in a haze of drink and drugs. He was in his early 20s, so he could chalk it up to partying, but really he was just avoiding everything. He became a skydiving instructor, travelled the world working, which sounded exciting and fulfilling, which it was, but the partying followed him around. I woke up one morning and uh, I had my own blood around me. I couldn't remember the night. I didn't know what happened. I was on bail from a silly incident that I was arrested for a month before. And I realised that life had to change. These days, Josh is on a different path. He's sober, working as a life coach. Marion Hilbers was a single mum who devoted her life to him and his brother, Sam. Like the, the biggest reason why I drank was that I had the fear of what my mum would see me as. The man that I'd become... But once I realised that that was my opinion and my idea and my belief, she actually still loved me regardless. Using her name and her legacy as an excuse and reason to to live this life is a disrespect to everything she'd done.
Good evening. If you're just joining our coverage, the country is reeling from a mass shooting in Christchurch. There have been multiple deaths and many... The horrific massacre at two Christchurch mosques in March 2019 was perhaps the worst crime ever committed in New Zealand. A white supremacist gunman opened fire on Muslim worshippers, killing 51 and injuring another 40. It's being described as one of New Zealand's darkest days. And just a warning, as I said... On that day, Senior Constable, now Sergeant, Stuart Martindale was on a day off, just like he was on the day of the earthquake eight years earlier. That day, he found himself at the CTV site, talking to a trapped Tamara Svetnova on the phone and trying in vain with Tamara's husband, Alec, to find her. In the days and weeks after the mosque shootings, the attacks consumed Martindale's work. Police were on patrol like never before and were often seen in public armed with automatic weapons. The experience would have a profound effect on his life. Um, and my eldest son had seen me all kitted up with the, the firearms and stuff one day. I got home from work that evening and he confronted me and said that that was really intimidating. I was really, I was really scared about that. And then he turned around and said, look, I've realised how vulnerable you are. Have you ever thought about leaving the police? And I just, no. And he said, will you? And so all the rest of the family jumped on. Yeah, go on, Dad. You know, it's time for you to get out. So you've, you've done, done your time <laughs> sort of thing, done your sentence. And yeah, two weeks later, literally one day after my 20-year anniversary, I submitted my resignation and yeah, out of there. That wasn't the only change Martindale made that year. Despite being named Stuart, for much of his life, he'd gone by Huata. My birth name was Stuart, Stuart Martindale. The name Huata was given to me when I was young, um, and it's something that I've carried. People have known me by, by both names. And the Martindale, I, um, I let that go when my wife and I, we had plans to renew our vows. Um, and she asked me, will you be prepared to take my name? She had lost her father at a young age, and she said to me, that's, that's the only thing my dad's left me, so I'm, I'm not going to give that up. So it's, it's the least I could do. So took on her surname of Arahanga. Nowadays, Huata Arahanga works for an agency that funds health initiatives in Māori communities. He met us a second time at the CTV site to talk about his new life and to relive some of that night. Where I would have been, sta- would have been standing. Another five metres... Down this way. The only record I could find of Huata at the scene that night was some slightly grainy TV footage. It's after dark and it's raining, and he's escorting a drenched Alex Fetnov through a throng of media and away from the CTV site. Probably just the side of the traffic lights, there was um, a barrier set up, and there's a lot of media there. He didn't need to be hounded at that stage, you know. He was he was in desperation. Today, the CTV site is a world away from how it looked that night when Huata Arahanga was doing everything he could to help Alex Fetnov. The rubble is gone, of course. The site has been landscaped a little. There's some small gardens, a place to leave flowers or mementos, and benches lining the perimeter where people can sit and reflect. But it still bears the scars of that day, February the 22nd, 2011. Much of the ground is still covered in the concrete from the building's foundations. One corner has some floor tiles from an old entrance, and there's even the remnants of one of the concrete columns. You can still see the inadequate steel reinforcing rods inside it, one of the many reasons why the building wasn't strong enough. 
It was days after the quake before Huata Arahanga learned that Tamaris Fetanova had died in the rubble. He pleaded to go back to the CTV site on the morning of February the 23rd, but he was assigned elsewhere. And feeling that I was so close. And I said to Alec later, I've only met him once, and that was at the coroner's court. I apologised. You know, I said, I'm sorry I failed. And he was, you know, he was saying, no, 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 no. I said, I just, I felt like it was my responsibility and we didn't come through for you, you know. And I know that there's potentially nothing I could have done. But you know, I've still got that feeling. I was talking to her. That that still sits with me now. It still sends me into into spirals of bloody emotional stress, you know, thinking about what if. But that's one regret that I'll take to my grave is not being able to save her. The Christchurch mosque attacks were the catalyst for Huerta's exit from the police. The effect it had on his family proved the tipping point. But nearly 10 years on from CTV, he wonders if the trauma of that night might have had something to do with moving on as well. Like Toppy Emery, he'd never been back to the site. So had you thought about leaving? I mean, no. CTV, that, yeah. that affect you in a similar sort of way at all? Or? Um, 20 years in the police, dare I say, you do become very thick-skinned. But looking back, yeah, potentially it did affect me. There's a lot of stuff in my career that I think maybe I, I haven't had closure on, this, this being one of them. Seven years after the CTV building collapse, the government repealed the year-and-a-day law and removed it from the Crimes Act. No one was sorry to see it go, but there was some disagreement on the terms of its departure. The law change was only forward-looking. So if at any point in the future there was another CTV-type building collapse on a building designed or built before 2018, a year and a day would still apply. It didn't make any difference to the CTV building anyway. The other law change that came out of CTV did have some small impact. We've told you about several major investigations into the collapse, but that's literally not even the half of it. There have been four other inquiries into David Harding and Alan Ray's conduct. One of them is still going. These have all been disciplinary-type hearings by engineering industry groups, and the law change came about because of how a couple of them played out. Ray and Harding resigned their memberships of one of these groups after complaints had been lodged, and for a while it looked like they might get off on a technicality. You're not a member here anymore, so we can't do anything. Finally, after a lot of legal wrangling, those actions went ahead. But compared with potential manslaughter charges, it was pretty low-stakes stuff. One of the complaints against Ray is the one still going, and as it stands, it should be heard this year, more than a decade after the collapse. The government has changed the law so an engineer can no longer resign membership of a professional body and escape censure. The CTV collapse has a complicated legacy. For one, it was a disaster within a disaster. 70 people died in places other than the CTV building as a result of the earthquake. Swathes of central city buildings were written off, thousands of homes were deemed uninhabitable, and tens of thousands more were damaged. 
The social and economic effects of the quake are still felt in Christchurch today and will be for years to come. Then there's the saga of CTV itself. We've talked about fate versus fault, but there was also just the sheer length of the aftermath. Today, when we write stories about whether an engineer should be allowed to quit a professional body and escape punishment, or about some ancient rule being struck from the law books, or about a press conference calling for another review of a prosecution that's already fallen over, it can all feel a bit petty, like we've lost sight of what actually happened. Even if you discount the rest of the Christchurch earthquake, the CTV collapse alone would have been New Zealand's fifth deadliest disaster. 115 people who were at work or at school or at appointments were killed when an understrength building that should never have been built like it was collapsed on top of them. For the countless people they left behind, it inflicted cracks and breaks that will never heal. David Harding, the engineer who designed the CTV building, declined to talk to us for this podcast. In 2014, at one of the disciplinary hearings against him, Harding, through his lawyer, said that his mental and physical health were at, quote, an extremely low ebb. My memory has deteriorated to the point that when questions are put to me, I simply cannot recall. I seize up when attempting to address questions and issues relating to the CTV building. Harding apologised that day to victims' families who had suffered because of the things he did or didn't do. My life, Harding said, shall also never be the same. He retired that year. Alan Ray, David Harding's old boss, also declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Ray has come in for more public criticism than Harding over the years. A lot of this, as we've said, stemmed from the fact that he was the guy in charge and should have had a better handle on things. Also, after the collapse, people felt like he was being unhelpful and evasive. Ten years on from the earthquake, Alan Ray is still in business, still working out of his Madras Street offices, about a kilometre up the road from the CTV site. Since 2012, the company that used to bear his name has been called Ingenium. In a written statement to us, Ray said that he still thought about the collapse and the lives lost every day. Here's an actor reading from that statement. I know that the families and friends of those who died will have deep feelings about the collapse and many questions. I have done everything within my reach to identify why the building collapsed and how the engineering profession can ensure that such a tragic outcome will not happen again. A couple of years ago, I did a podcast about the Erebus disaster, an Air New Zealand plane that crashed into a volcano on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica more than 40 years ago. It was a very different tragedy to CTV, and in many ways it was even more consequential, more divisive. But looking at CTV so closely again now, I'm struck more by the similarities. In both cases, there was huge fallout afterwards about who was to blame. All the legal fights took years to play out, and people were mostly left feeling disillusioned by the result, like justice was never really done. And this, sadly, has become something of a pattern in New Zealand. Since Erebus, we've got a lot better at processing tragedy and supporting people affected by it. Some of the stories about how victims' families were treated 40 years ago are truly appalling. But we still can't seem to get the accountability part right. 
I don't know what the solution is, but something needs to change. We can't keep doing this to ourselves. You heard Manal Casey earlier talking at a press conference in late 2020, pleading with the government to take another look at the police investigation. The prospects there are not good, but the fact that he's even asking shows how badly the system lets down people like him. A few months before the CTV collapse, there was an explosion at the Pike River coal mine on the South Island's west coast. 29 men died. Nigel Hampton, Alex Svetnoff's lawyer, represented the victims' families at the Pike River Commission of Inquiry too. That also ended with systemic failures being exposed and as yet, no criminal charges. It's taken a large part of uh, my life in the last 10 years and I've been Pike still ongoing in certain aspects. I'm still giving advice on Pike. I still talk to Alec every now and again about things and, I mean... That's as much just talking to him as a human being, as a, as a fellow that I, I like and respect and have formed a friendship with. Hampton was another strident critic of the police decision not to prosecute Alan Ray or David Harding over CTV. He's since accepted it, but the whole thing still weighs on him. In his 50-year career, Hampton has mostly done criminal defence work. It's only lately he's come to specialise in disasters. Last 10 years, I have disaster dreams. It tells you I'm thinking about it. What is your abiding memory of CTV? It's a smouldering wreckage with a, a, a view of a smallish man called Alex Fetinoff standing on top of it. Desperately, desperately trying to get someone to listen to him because he knows where his wife is underneath him and she's alive. Seems sad that you and I are here talking about this now and the way we are talking about it and how it played out. Does it seem sad to you? Oh, almost insufferably so. You can reduce me to tears over it, because it seems so wrong. And that's why I dream about disasters. I'm an emotional man. But it's wrong. On February the 22nd, 2011, David Beaumont didn't see his son, Matty. He should have seen him that night at a big family dinner, but that never happened. Instead, he got his last glimpse the day before, Monday the 21st. And he was in. He was in the kitchen, came down, shouted, Hi, Dad. Uh, I'll see you on Tuesday. And he was gone. It was strange that Matty would leave so abruptly, but he had his reasons. The reason he did it, he'd grown a goatee, and he he wanted to surprise everybody at the... On the Tuesday night. <laughs> so the last time I ever saw it was only the back of Matty disappearing into his car. <laughs> on the Tuesday morning, the 22nd, Matty was at work as usual. His fiancée dropped him off about 20 past seven. 18 minutes after midday, he sent her a text message. A couple of minutes later, he was seen with two colleagues in an office on the first floor of the building. 
the earthquake hit at 12.51pm. Witnesses agree that the CTV building started collapsing almost immediately. First, the windows shattered, exploding outward, almost in unison. Then the cladding on the outside of the building started to fall away. It's hard to know exactly what happened next, but several witnesses said it appeared that the fifth floor, the second to top floor, gave way first. There would have been a single joint in the building that triggered this. A connection between a vertical column and horizontal beam that failed and set the whole collapse in motion. No one can be positive which one it was, but the biggest stresses would have been on the southern corners, furthest from the shear wall system on the north side. Once one of those joints failed, the building was doomed. If the fifth floor theory was correct, then the sixth floor, the top floor, likely came down on top of it, and the rest followed. As each floor pancaked onto the one below, it was ripped free from the north wall, the wall that was supposed to hold up the building in an earthquake. When it was over, the north wall stood, skinny and exposed. A horrific monolith, the press later called it. The entire collapse had taken no more than 20 seconds. It was, as the Royal Commission said, sudden and catastrophic. The last time anyone ever saw Matty Beaumont alive was in the CTV production office on the first floor of the building at 12.40pm, 11 minutes before the earthquake. For more than three months, no trace of him was found. Eventually, some of his remains were identified using dental records and returned to his parents. Matty Beaumont was adopted. His parents collected him from an orphanage in Greymouth when he was a baby. David Beaumont can still recall seeing his son for the first time. I walked in there, looked over. That was my son. Just like that. Because even at two weeks old, he'd chosen us as much as we chose to live. <laughs> David Beaumont keeps a photo of his son on the dresser in his bedroom. In the picture, Matty's wearing a tuxedo and holding a fake Academy Award statuette. Every year, he and his friends would hold their own Oscars ceremony and hand out awards to whoever they thought should win. In this photo, he's grinning ear to ear and cradling the award, like he's won it himself. He always was a showman. Every morning, David Beaumont looks at that photo and gives his son the thumbs up. He says he's at peace with Maddie's death and everything that happened after the CTV building collapsed. But he doesn't look at it as the end of his relationship with his son. He'll see him again sometime. Maybe check out that goatee he was growing. I always um, have a hope in my mind that we'll meet again sometime. So I always um, look upon it it's like as if he lives so far away. I can't visit him. But you will eventually? Yeah. And no one can prove me wrong.
is a stuff podcast written, produced and presented by Margaret Gordon and me, Michael Wright. Additional reporting, research and creative input by Mark Greenhill, script editing by Adam Dudding, music by Henry Nickel, sound mix and design by Chris Sinclair. Thanks to Carol Hirschfeld, Patrick Crutzen, Anu Hasbold, Kamala Heyman, John Hartfeld, Aaron Wood, Sungmi Kim, Keiko Kobayashi, Amanda Reed, Tom McKendrick, Charlie Gates, Philip Matthews, David Beaumont, Grant Collins, Fred Gear, Plains FM in Christchurch, and 60 Minutes Australia. If you want to know more, head to stuff.co.nz collapse, where you'll find links to every episode, as well as photos, graphics, and feature articles. You'll also find links for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast apps. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to give Collapse a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. This episode included audio from TVNZ, ABC, Star Media and New Zealand Police. Horizon, written by H. Top, performed by Aldous Harding, published by Native Tongue Music Publishing, courtesy of Flying Nun Records. Thanks also to The Age and Nine. This podcast was made possible with help from New Zealand On Air.